Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. I've heard the saying, if you walk by someone that has had injectable fillers or wrinkle reduction treatments and you can't tell, it's a successful treatment. And although that wouldn't be the case for some trend-based aesthetic treatments, it's certainly the case in today's interview. Welcome to episode number 13 of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Thiever, cosmetic physician of Dr. T Aesthetics in Glen Iris of Victoria. Dr. Thiever has been a general practitioner for 20 years, um, and he decided to pursue his passion of helping people with their anti-aging needs through non-surgical methods. So seven years ago, he um, delved into the world of aesthetics medicine. Dr. Thiever's goal is to provide a holistic approach to anti-aging and healthy living, which helps his clients to look and feel their best and radiate confidence from within at any age. Dr. Thiever shares how his journey into aesthetics has led him into specializing in non-surgical facelifts and the importance of finding a practitioner that is not only qualified, but can handle the risks of treatment if they occur. I started by asking Dr. Thiever what he thought was the biggest misconception about injectable treatments. Look, I think the biggest misconception is that everyone who has it, would look unnatural and that's not necessarily the case and the other mis, uh, the other big misconception is that um, that these injectables can be done with some very basic training but anyone who injects uh, need to know for example the facial anatomy really well but the biggest fear and misconception that people have is really the concept of looking very unnatural because that's what happens in some cases and people believe that's what happens all the time and that's not the case. Yeah, I've heard um, people say that good fillers or good injectables, you would pass someone in the street and wouldn't even know that they've had it because it, it just blends. Exactly. So what people would say, should say to people who had treatment is that, oh, Mrs. Smith, you look really well. It looked really great, but shouldn't pick up the fat treatment. Yeah, absolutely. So you're the owner of Dr. T Aesthetics in Glen Iris, an aesthetic centre um, yeah. specialising in anti-aging treatments and injectables. How did you come to be the owner, founder of Dr. T Aesthetics? Is it something that you always thought that you would work in? Yeah, so I've been a, <clears throat> I've been a general practitioner for about 22 years. And after doing that, I decided to sort of pursue my passion in helping people with their anti-aging needs through non-surgical methods. So I did um, some extra training about nine years ago. And it all started with me doing some injectables in a small room in Fitzroy. 
But then having started that, I realized that everyone needs more than just injectables. And I wanted to provide a one-stop shop practice that we can provide a very comprehensive treatment to every client. So that's when I decided to open up a practice uh, with multiple services, including injectable, which we then, um, from initially being called Dr. Teva Cosmetic, we rebranded to Dr. T Aesthetics about um, a year ago. Okay, and, fabulous. Yeah. So that, that's how it all started. And really, my goal is really to provide a very holistic approach to anti-aging and healthy living, which then helps clients to look and feel their best and rated confidence at any age. Yeah. And your specialty is non-surgical facelift. Um, so that's right. would you be able to explain it? Like, what is that? Um, it sounds a lot less non-invasive, but also what tends to happen as we age apart from, um, you know, we have the obvious signs of we know that we get wrinkles, we know that we get pigmentation, but what is happening um, maybe on a deeper level and why can a non-surgical facelift be a good option for these signs of aging? Right. So as we age, there's several things that happens. So we often start with having some lines and wrinkles that normally starts from mid twenties and progressively gets worse. And then we start losing volume in the face and that also then alters the shape of the face. So for example, you, the common area is losing volume in the cheeks, which then causes the, um, the cheeks and the facial structure to slide downwards which then alters the shape of the face. And of course, after that volume loss, you can also uh, have a change in the quality of the skin. And then it leads on to bone loss and leads on to laxity. So it's a sort of a slowly progressive change. So when it comes um, to non-surgical facelifting, it's done through two or three methods. But what it essentially means is that we are actually lifting and the sagging areas of the skin, mainly along the jawline and around the mouth. And we're lifting and reversing those changes to reestablish the facial shape um, that was there before. Yeah, okay. Um, so essentially when we get older, everything goes south. That's right. Which can exactly cause a right. more oblong, I guess, look to someone's face. More um, oblong rather than, rather than the oval. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the idea with non-surgical facelifting would be to both improving the skin texture but also assisting with that loss of facial volume. So um, for lack of a better term, plumping areas that have got that. Loss, yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. So that's exactly what happens. And the bottom of the face kind of squares off because of the descent and things going down south. So by lifting, we're trying to reestablish the oval shape of the face, the oval shape of the face, and also um, reversing the changes, plus, as you said, plumping up the volume depleted areas. 
Yeah. And now you use methods like in uh, what injectables, fillers, Botox. What what are your methods in your non-surgical facelift? You mentioned that you have three different types of modalities or or yeah. approaches to it. So the the first method is using dermal fillers, uh, but I love that's a technique that I actually love using to uh, do the uh, facelift. But there's also another method called the tread lift, which is not which is slightly more invasive than fillers, but not overly invasive. It can still be done in the rooms. And the third method is using. Uh, you know, what we call high-frequency ultrasound machines. is like a laser machine that's designed for skin tightening and facelift. Yes. And would you be able to explain a little bit more? People are probably quite familiar with fillers, so fillers would be filling in area, increasing volume. Thread lift is something a little bit newer on the market. How does that work? Right. So just one point on the fillers. So... Well, fillers are designed to volumize, but when we talk about the facelift, it's actually not, in that instance, is not more, not solely volumizing. We actually, for example, put the fillers along the jawline with the right technique and literally lift using that. So it's not going to make the face any wider, but it just lifts by injecting along the jawline. Plus, you then also volumize the cheeks. With the tread lift, um, it's a procedure where the treads uh, comes with little small cones, they're like like little Christmas tree type shaped cones that goes along the tread. Now, what happens is we need about three to four treads per side of the face. We've got to mark the um, insertion and the exit points of the treads. Uh, on each side of the face. And the marking is the most important part because we've got to make sure that it lifts in the correct direction. Once that's done, we then, so the, the, the threads also come in a, in a kind of, the two little probes at each end to help us guide, through, guide the thread through the area of insertion. And once it's done, it, the tissues are very nicely lifted. Um, it's a bit more downtime. There's slightly higher risk of bruising with tread lift. And it takes about a kind of a month to really settle in. And then it does can last up to 18 months. That's the current thread in the market, but there are two newer threads coming out over the next three months that I'm anxiously waiting or eagerly waiting to learn about. And that's supposed to be a lot better than what we have at the moment. But I've not had any experience on that yet. And I'm, in fact, I'm going for the first training session tomorrow night oh, to, to, to learn on the, the new threads that are coming on the market. Okay. So so why you mentioned that the threads take uh, or will last about 18 months. Do they break down in the skin? Is that why the length of time is not significant or not? Yes. So the threads actually last for 12 months. And then the thread body breaks it down and thread disappears on you. So we don't have to physically remove it. But the effect of the thread lift lasts 18 months. Okay. So you don't have to have a new set of new set of threads for uh, 18 months. But the thread itself 
we've broken down on it. We've broken down in about 12 months without having to remove it. Okay, so the, the threads are applied uh, just along the side of the face and they have like little anchors that l lift the skin or lift Absolutely. that tissue underneath. Yes. Yeah. And that Christmas tree type cones I talked about, that's what anchors to the skin. So you've got about four, eight little cones along the entire thread and that sort of anchors to the skin and, um, and that helps to lift. Okay, interesting. And what was the other method? So fillers, we've got um, the thread lift and, and you mentioned something else. Yeah, so third one is uh, we've got two sort of machines. One's, one's, one's infrared and the other one's what we call high intense frequency ultrasound. It sounds technical. Essentially, is machines that we threw some heat, not overly painful. It helps to... Uh, sort of break the collagen down and restructure collagen so it allows the lift to happen. It, it's got, it also works at the right layer of the skin. Now, the good thing, the, 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 the good thing with this, the machine is really no downtime, is not very painful, and it's a very well-tolerated machine, but it takes about three months to see the full effect. So someone who wants the results quicker may not be suitable for the machines. Someone who doesn't like needles, machine will be ideal, but it does take about three months to have the full effect. So the machines are called, so one is called Ultraformer and the other one is called Titan. So these are two machines that can do a bit of lifting. I see. So really depending on what that person's outcomes are, what their time frame is, if they had an event that they were coming up, then maybe you do fillers or you could use a combination of the three if they were looking for more of a long-term approach to anti-aging. Absolutely. And there are people who've got a bit more saggy, might then might need combination treatment. Exactly. So it depends. So that's why the consultation process is very important. We know what patient, what client's goals are, what their circumstances are, what they hope to achieve, and then work at a plan based on that. That might involve either one of those three, or combination treatment. So for example, someone with mm, a very heavy jowls along the jawline uh, or, or sagging skin along the jawline might need the initial with the uh, machine treatment, either Titan or Ultraformer, and then the Trellip or filler, or they can do the filler first and then go to machine. So it's just going to depend on how we do it based on the circumstances. But there are people who need combination treatment. Most can manage with either one of those three, but uh, there are a few people who need combination treatment. Mm. Yeah, of course. And it, yeah, again, comes back to what their expectations are, you know, doing a con thorough consultation and finding out what, um, what their needs and wants and end result. Exactly right. Exactly. So there's also um, treatments that use injectables to do things like relax muscles. Um, so, for example, people have their masseters done with um, muscle relaxants to relax the muscles from, like, clenching teeth and giving headaches. Does, how does this have an effect on the muscles in the lower face? Okay. So the masseter treatment, you're, quite, you're, you're absolutely right. It's for clenching, grinding. And people who clench and grind do cause the muscles 
to the muscles in the angle of the mouth is called the masseter, and that's the common muscle that gets enlarged as a result of that. But then the enlarged muscle also causes the pain. So, and some clients, especially the Asian clients, can have genetic predisposition to this enlarged masseter. May not come from teeth grinding, but this is very easily treated by the uh, anti-wrinkle injections. Now, once you treat that muscle, it releases symptoms straight away. It also recontours the face because between the muscles are losing five kilos in weight. The facial shape, the lower part of the face shape changes um, and it really recontours the, recontours the face. Now, it doesn't have, so the, again, the anatomy is very important. We've got to mark the areas correctly because if we inject the masses alone, then none of the other lower facial muscles will get affected. But as a complication, if you don't mark this correctly, you, if you inject into the wrong muscle, then you could have problems. But if you inject it correctly, in the right markings, there won't be, it won't impact on any of the other lower facial muscles. Okay, so it really comes down to technique because I've, I have um, had some conversations with people who have had a first-hand kind of, um, I guess, experience with this where they've had their masseters done to perhaps um, have some thinning of their face or even for a clenching jaw. Uh, and these people have been under 40 and what they've actually noticed is that they're their jowls or along their jawline has actually dropped, which that they've felt has made them look older because of this treatment. But is this always a side effect of this type of treatment? Or is it just when, like you said, perhaps maybe other muscles have been affected if um, the entire area has been treated rather than just making it more um, based on the masseter muscle? Absolutely. So it should never happen. So if you treat it correctly, none of this should happen. So this is definitely not a side effect of the treatment. It's definitely more of a complication of the treatment where they have in accidentally injected the other muscles. Okay. Um, because once this treatment, if it's done correctly, the results are fantastic. And people love the treatment, the result, and it really, really recontours the face without causing any problems whatsoever. Yeah, so it comes back to that technique. Technique, and knowing the anatomy really well. That's important, as I mentioned at the start, the, these kind of injectables have been done someone who knows the facial anatomy really, really well. Yeah. Uh, because the muscles in the face are, closely, are very close to each other. So it's very easy if you don't know the anatomy to end up with problems. So that's why anyone who does injectables need to know the facial anatomy really well. Yeah. And I might be putting you on the spot uh, right now. I'm not sure if you'll know the answers exactly, but how many um, muscles are we looking at in the face and how many nerves and um, kind of capillary networks are we actually looking at just in the face alone as compared to the rest of the body? Okay. So I don't know the exact numbers, but there are lots and lots of muscles. There are small muscles and the, and medium size and the larger muscles in the face. And, and the face is very vascular, meaning lots of facial arteries, lots of arteries and nerves and muscles and veins. So that's why it's all the more important that this has been done by someone who's properly trained, who knows facial anatomy, 
and that would reduce risk of complications. Mm. Yeah. And would you say um, the face would be most vascular in, of, as a, um, compared to the rest of the body? Yes, 100%. Yeah. The face is one of the most, it is the most vascular uh, uh, part of the body. So we've got like these branch-like features that are going all over the face and with the naked eye when we're looking at skin, we don't see that. But that's what has to be considered when you're performing these types of procedures. Right, exactly. So you've got the main artery. So for example, there's something called the facial artery, which is a main artery. And there's so many uh, arteries that, that, come out, that come out of that, like a main road, and then you've got the side roads coming out of the main road. Same principle. And loads of arteries, and it goes to every part of the face. And quite rightly, you don't see the naked eye. But uh, when we inject, we need to know where the arteries are and the anatomy really well because the face has got all these vessels that stem from everywhere. Yeah. So we know that fillers and some of these other procedures could be beneficial as a non-surgical facelift or option. What are mm -hmm. the limitations to fillers though? So when would you refer on? Okay. So I would, so in, I'll answer your second part of your questions first. So I'll refer people if I can't do something. So one of the trickiest, for example, one of the trickiest area to treat is the nose because it's very vascular. So I do noses, but if it's, a nose that's beyond my capability, I would definitely refer on. So I wouldn't risk taking on something that I don't feel comfortable with. So I do a lot of this stuff myself, but the nose area can be quite tricky. And because of all the vessels along the nose, I'd only do it if I'm really comfortable. And I'll refer people on if it's, um, if it's, um, uh, if it's, if it's difficult. Now, in terms of the other areas, that we've got to be careful. For example, the area called the tear trough, which is just under the eye. I do a lot of it, but again, it's an area that can lead to problems. if you are not careful. So I'm very cautious how I deal with tear troughs, but um, if you do it correctly, uh, no problems whatsoever. So I do a lot of tear troughs, but in terms of the, uh, the limitations, really the biggest risk or limitations with fillers is really accidentally inject into a blood vessel. Now, while we can dissolve, if it goes to the blood vessel, we can dissolve it by dissolving agent. But at all costs, when we inject, we must, must, must avoid injecting into a blood vessel. So back to what I said, anatomy needs, we need to know it really well, but that is the biggest risk or limitation in dermal fillers. Yeah, and the so the risk would be injecting into one of these vascular networks, and then yes. what could be a result of that? Some people okay. make photos, but for those that may not know the risks, um, would you be able to elaborate a little bit? Okay, I will elaborate. So hopefully, people don't get frightened with this, but it can cause blindness um, because the the vessels from the face does end up supplying the eyes as well the branches of the main arteries. Uh, it can cause blindness. It can cause dead tissue. So if you inject, for example, in the area of the nose, and inject one of the blood vessels, it can cause part of the nose to end up being what we call a dead tissue or 
ischemic tissue or gangrenous tissue. Um, and the other, so, and then the other thing is intense pain. So obviously fillers can, can cause a bit of discomfort, but they should be intense pain. But the biggest worry, the biggest risk is blindness. Mm. So yeah, some pretty big risk there. And I guess it's important for people to know the risk, but these, um, it's, it's a mi- minority, right? Like the, it's, I don't know what the statistics are on the chances of this, but it's not a common thing, but it's, it's still a risk. Yeah, so it's not common at all. Um, I think in Australia, we've probably seen over the last so many years, probably seen three or four. Uh, it's not common at all, but it is a risk that people need to be aware of when you sign a consent form. Yeah. But definitely 100% is not common at all. Yeah. And again, if we know how we inject the technique and all what I've covered before, then the risk is really negated or very minimal. Yeah. So the better the practice is, the more experienced the injector is, the more they know about their facial anatomy, um, the, the more decreased well, it, the risk is, essentially. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah. And also, the I find it really interesting just in regards to, I've seen some of these terrible photos where some people have had that dead tissue or necrosis mm. of the nose. And it's because of really we're cutting off that blood circulation, right? So if a, um, a vessel or something is filled with filler, then there's no blood supply going to that area. And we need blood supply for our tissue and for our skin to stay alive. So when we cut off that blood supply, that tissue starts to die. Exactly right. Yeah. So that's what happens. So when you inject filler accidentally into a blood vessel, it totally blocks off the supply to the area. Yeah. Hence the tissue dies. Yeah. So I want to change gears just a little bit, mm-hmm. Dr. Thiever. So in September 2017, Jean Huang, she is a 35-year-old um, Sydney woman, and she actually died after going into cardiac arrest. This was following an unregulated non-surgical breast augmentation, and it was performed by a non-registered um, practitioner that was actually here in Australia on a tourist visa. So the procedure involved fillers, and the fillers were actually injected into each breast. The public were obviously outraged. The media went into an absolute frenzy. And it was an absolutely tragic event that finally, I think, shone the light on unethical practice and malpractice. And it's raised a lot of questions in the industry. What do you think was perhaps not highlighted in this case? Um, and how do you think we can reflect on this as an industry on the whole, as an um, industry practitioner, but also for consumers out there? Okay, so I think the this industry hasn't been very regulated for a long time. And to an extent that anyone was doing any treatment as highlighted in this case, where this lady who treated the client that died did not have the right treatment. So as a result of this, um, the, I think, so the result, so I guess in answer to your question is the, the fact that it did not highlight how unregulated the industry is. But now with all this that's happened and a couple of other smaller cases that's gone wrong, the industry is getting much more regulated. 
So it's definitely uh, tarnished the industry's name and created a bit of fear in a lot of people. But at the same time, it's, it's I guess, the sort of the good side of it is that it's getting more regulated now. And there are a lot of there are a lot of clinics that do things that they shouldn't do. So for example, a day center is not set up for a full anesthetic. Uh, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll rephrase that. So if someone's got a, a treatment room, a large treatment room in a, in, a, in a practice, that's not set up for a full anesthetic procedure. Mm. So when complications arise, we can't, they're not adequately equipped to treat that. Mm. And that is also wasn't highlighted before this case happened. But now it's also brought about all um, people now reviewing practices that they do these things. So, so the point is, it shouldn't be, uh, I guess, anywhere that's unsafe. Do what practitioners are comfortable with in a very safe environment. Um, and the because industry is getting more regulated, I, I believe these things will now get much, much less. From the consumer's point of view, it's so important they do the proper research and who they go to. And, and they've got to uh, not rush into treatment, go for a consultation process, check, uh, do a research on the practitioner and the clinic, and then um, embark on the treatment. Mm -hmm. But the, the um, so we've had a few cases that this one caused a fatality, but there are other cases that people, clients haven't died, but have had things gone wrong. It's all come back to the same issue of doing not doing things in a safe environment, and doing also doing things beyond the scope of the practitioner. Mm. So just as you've highlighted that uh, you specialize in non-surgical facelifts, but if there's a case that maybe you don't feel comfortable with because you may be not a specialist in that specific area of the face, you'll send them to a specialist of that area. So some people might actually just, just specialize is specialize in noses, right? Exactly. Or, yeah. Absolutely. And, and I guess we've heard over and over again, it's all well and good until someone gets hurt. Um, so we have practitioners that just because they can inject, they will start doing all these other treatments that they may have seen overseas. It's really hard, though, for consumers because if someone is advertising that they're doing a treatment, the consumer would really expect that that clinic or that um, business and that establishment really knows what they're doing if they're actually marketing that they are performing those procedures. So how would the consumer actually know, um, firstly, if that practitioner is able to do those procedures, um, but secondly, there's also these types of procedures that may not even be regulated or they might not be really accepted or be even allowed in Australia. How can they differentiate between what's safe and what's perhaps just a fad? Okay. So um, the first thing they have to do is they, they have to do, so not to rush into treatment. So if they got a particular area they want treatment treated or particular concern they want addressed. And the key is to do a research online um, to the relevant clinics in the area or the practitioner himself. 
So we suddenly start off by doing, you know, checking the website, doing the Google reviews, checking the Google reviews out, checking checking um, all the sort of the type of services they do. Then the next thing that's important is for them to then come in and go and have a consultation. Now, now if that involves two or two, two or three different consultations with the practitioner, with different practitioners, so be it. Um, so they need to be assessed by a practitioner and, and they need to then see if the needs can be addressed by the practitioner. So often you can, you can ask for photographs, you can ask for before and after photos of similar procedures that have been done in the past. You can check, for example, how many procedures of this they've done. So these are things that they can check with the clinic or with the practitioner. And then they make informed decision based on that. But also remembering that every consent, there may be more than one treatment option. So this is where they need to also get to know the pros and cons of each option and then decide what's best for them and then and then, and also then decide based on the safest approach as guided by the practitioner. But if they, after the first consult, they don't feel confident then they shouldn't rush into it. Come back for a second consult, go for another opinion until they're fully satisfied and also the word of mouth always helps. So talking to other friends or um, colleagues that might have had treatment, they can also go to recommendation from them. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good point as well. And it's my understanding that as a um, medical practitioner, you're actually obliged to give other options, correct? Absolutely. So... Um, so while someone goes for a consultation and they might come in and they say, I want this particular treatment, and then you're going to perhaps give a couple of other options based on what their, they, their expected outcomes are to give them choice. But that's, um, that's also something that is required by yes. you too, right? So if, say, a practitioner isn't giving any other options, they're just giving the one solution, then it, it might kind of give you a question of, are they practicing um, in the correct way that they should be? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. So we are obliged, uh, we should give options to clients because there's no one treatment fits all. And our job is really to give the options and facilitate the decision-making process, but they've got to make the final decision, but we've helped them and facilitate the process. But the options is very important. And the pros and cons um, of each one is very, very important. Uh, and then they make the decision based on that. So that's very true. Mm. Now, social media is the generation of lookalikes. I've even heard um, in places like Hollywood, you can actually tell who someone's plastic surgery is because many of people will have the same nose or the same cheekbones. What do you think drives this lookalike? Type, um, generation. So look, I, I believe that it's the pictures that lots of celebrities and high-profile people put on their social media page. I guess mainly it's probably Instagram. Um, 
I think that that's what drives people to sort of say, oh, that looks really good. I want to be like that. Now, they may not need that treatment, but because the picture they have seen is perceived to be a lot better um, and they want that look. So, so, so I guess the common area we see is the lips, for example. You know, people are coming asking for lips based on some of the um, high profile people having. And they might not, they might have a perfectly fine lips, but they perceive the lips are not as good as what's on the picture. So that drives them to seek treatment to look exactly like that person. Um, and there are also people who, who love to post, I guess, everything about your journey and what they do in life. And so someone may feel a bit of peer pressure. So if you take, for example, you know, a young person who puts everything about her journey on social media and, the, and part of her journey includes cosmetic treatment. And she might then put the reasons why she's done it as her journey. And this might also ring a bell with somebody looking at the picture thinking, oh, I've got the same issue. So maybe I should do the treatment and I'll get the same benefit, kind of thing, same look. So I think these are things that drives this whole social media frenzy. Mm. And you mentioned they might not be sharing the reasons why. So perhaps they're just having a superficial view of what the treatment is and what the after effect is, but they don't necessarily include the whole story. I agree. They don't include the whole story. So, so you know, and there are people look at the picture and say, yeah, I need this, and they just go for it. So, yeah. So it's up to people like us then to really assess and see if the client really needs that and then give them the right advice. Mm. Do you see many patients that are either having fillers removed or something removed that they've, they've had a prior procedure where it might be of a, a fad type trend um, that they're now having removed because it's no longer a fad or they've realized that they've um, made a mistake as opposed to just um, perhaps a, a poor workmanship or someone that has done a procedure incorrectly. But I'm interested to hear more about those fad type treatments. So I don't see, I'm not seeing a lot of those. I may have seen one or two who have done it and then, and then they've come and requested me to dissolve it. But I've got one, well, fortunately in my practice, I've never dissolved, never had to dissolve any of my work. But I've got also a policy where I don't like to dissolve other people's work. So my routine practice is someone asks for something to dissolve, I send them back to a practitioner that did that. But of course, you, do, you, do, you then do get cases where people literally plead and plead for dissolve because they don't want to go back to the other clinic. And that uh, is often a mistake they've done or is not a fad anymore, it's a mistake they've done. So then sometimes I'm kind of sort of feel sorry for them and I end up dissolving it. But I don't see a lot of that. I probably may have seen maybe two in the last seven years that I had to sort of dissolve. Okay, that's good. Well, that might give an indication. I mean, Melbourne 
um, probably compared to other cities in Australia, might be a little bit more conservative in mm. their the way that they want their injectables to look. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But also I may be seeing a different group of clientele. So my clientele may be very different to what other uh, practitioners may be seeing. Um, and that's why I may not be seeing a lot of those either. True. And, and also could be the fact that the Melbourne, as you said, the Melbourne uh, clients are more conservative. But I think, yeah, so it could be uh, different reasons for that. Yeah, sure. And I'm sure different practitioners will also attract a different type of clientele depending on what you specialize in. So you're obviously more about the natural kind of look. So you're not going to get someone that is going to want that real um, over-the-top, overdone, um, overfilled look perhaps. Absolutely. So I, my specialty is I do specialize on the natural look. So I never, ever go beyond the point of looking natural. So I'll always stop and um, stop at the point of natural look and not look at that's what I specialize on. But also I often like to pitch the concept of taking people through an anti-aging treatment journey. It's not a destination, it's a journey. So we start at a very small level based on people's priorities, concerns and all that and then take them to a step-by-step process until the goals are achieved, and then you maintain it. Because none of these treatments are permanent, so we then try to maintain it. And everything is all part of a journey, and we just take them through that. So that's what I love to do after the consulting process, go to a treatment plan, pitch the journey concept, and then take through the journey. But the outcome, final outcome is looking absolutely natural, having a radiant, vibrant skin, and very much looking um, so harmonious and in balance. Mm. Yeah, so what about um, body dysmorphia? So it is a real thing. I'm sure you would see it sometimes in your practice, and and it might come down to um, the different types of clientele that will be attracted into your clinic as opposed to another clinic might see more body dysmorphia, but how do you manage these patients that are requesting more and more treatments to the point that you feel that they are looking unnatural and it's not a treatment that you want to do? How would you manage someone like that? Okay, so it comes back to my consultation. So I spend a fair bit of time on the consultation time. I don't necessarily rush the consulting process. So everyone who comes up and goes through a consultation with me first. So at the consultation, I obviously go through the... uh, concerns, expectations, your goals, and all that. And then I work through a treatment plan, but I do tell them that my goal is to hit the point of looking absolutely natural, and I won't won't go beyond that. And once we hit the natural point, we then maintain that. Now, fillers are very addictive, and as you said, clients with the body issues can end up requesting more and more. So it's up to us to then say, no, that's enough. And I wouldn't at all costs go beyond the point of natural, but if we insist on having more, then I would actually decline and then give them the option of going somewhere else. So I wouldn't be pressured 
into doing more for them if I know they've got a good result, a great result, looking absolutely natural, and uh, and, and, and I've met their goals. So all this is kind of laid out in the consultation process as part of plan. But of course, the one thing more feelers then come because they like the result, it comes in the reviews or the subsequent consultants when they keep asking for more. And that's when I say, you know, I don't think you need any more. And if they feel they want some more, then they then they can go they'll go somewhere else. But one of the important things that I do as a practitioner is balancing clients' wants and needs. So clients often come and say what they want, but then I will then see what I think they need. And that's part of the facial assessment that I do after the consulting. And once I've done the uh, met, uh, sort of done yeah, what they need and then see what they want and come up with the right treatment plan addressing what they want, what they need, and then having a little a journey based on that. So I don't jump and treat people with what they necessarily want. So that also helps to avoid these issues coming up. Because if I, for example, jump and treat somebody, if they want to see the lips done and they treat the lips, then they'll keep asking potentially different things that can make them look very, very unnatural. So by me then going through a process with them and sort of working through wants and needs and all that, it alleviates that problem too. Mm, makes sense. And yeah. I mean, women talk, right? And I'm sure m- most of your clientele is pro- most likely women. Um, yeah. But women talk. So one lady might come into the clinic and say, my friend Joe had this treatment. I'd like this exact treatment. But you might look at her face and think, mm, that's not going to do the same thing that it did for Joe. So um, it can, and I think this is across many industries, sometimes clients will come in and they'll say, I want this. But as you, as the professional, as you, as the specialist, you could look at that person and say, well, you're not going to get the same outcome because your face structure is different or your concerns are different or your, the, your volume loss is different to your friends, for example. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. So that's where, that's exactly right. So this is where the wants and needs is very important, the balancing. And it's very important, absolutely. So I don't rush into because someone else has had it. I'll do the same for this person. Yeah. But I think with clients, you explain to them the reasons why you do what you do and they understand it, then they're very much on, 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 on the same page as you. Mm, yeah. uh, I think that helps a lot. So this is why I spent a fair bit of time uh, consulting. Uh, and not just rushing to treatment. Yeah. You were explaining before about the importance of knowing facial anatomy, physiology, um, but I'm sure there's a lot more to that when you're actually kind of moulding or shaping someone's face. What are your, like, methods? How do you um, define what a balanced, um, good-looking face is? Okay. So when... So I believe dermal fillers, for example, will give the best result with the right product choice, right technique, right quantity, and right positioning of the fillers. So whether we are doing a volumizing of the cheeks or whether we're doing a lift, the injection points and the quantity used per injection point 
is the most important. And and also that injecting at certain points will lift the face, for example, a bit better than injecting at different points. So these are the important factors. So the injection points, the quantity, the type of product. So for example, if you're treating the, in terms of type of product, if you are treating the tear trough, we would use a much lighter filler to something to compare to volumizing the cheeks. So the product choice is so important, the quantity is important, and exactly where you position the filler is very important because different points give different results. So this is how we, by doing the correct positioning technique, right product choice and right quantity, we achieve that natural result. The other thing is I do go to a lot of conferences, local and international, and I'm always upskilling myself. And I believe if I'm upskilling myself, I'm providing better service to my clients, which then allows them to make better informed choices. So I do update myself on a regular basis. And this also allows me to improve my injection technique, which then meets my goal of giving that, that ultimate natural look. Mm. And I've um, seen things like the golden ratio or the fee, um, the fee measurement. Is that things that you also use in your practice? Uh, occasionally, I do the golden ratio occasionally, not all the time. Um, a lot of times, um, if you know, the, the golden ratio is important, so I do use it from time to time. But again, come back to the point, if you know the anatomy and the sort of injection points, it sort of all falls into place. Yeah, and by looking, yeah. I guess, with your naked eye as well, sometimes yes. it might seem good on paper but then what it looks like with the naked eye, because that's what you're going to be looking at. Exactly. So that's why uh, when doing my facial assessment, I'm constantly looking at your face. And I, then I say, I ask myself a question, how can I give the best impact to a client based on what we're going to do? Mm. And, then, and then you go through your process and treat them. Yeah. So for those that are listening and they may be thinking about having injectables for the first time, what would you say to them? Right. So do you, I would say do your research. Remembering that injectables has its risks and it's not the only treatment available. So important thing to do your research on the clinic, on the practitioner before you step in. And then the important thing is coming for a consultation. Get, make sure that your, um, your concerns are addressed, that you get all the possible options. And injectable may be the best treatment for you, but may not be the best. So we're just gonna see what the concerns are. So definitely come in for a consultation um, and then make, and then the practitioner or myself or the practitioner will facilitate your decision-making process. But the key is to do research, go to the right clinic, right practitioner, someone with experience, uh, someone who's done a lot of this. And once you've done that, come for a consultation and then go to the process with them. Mm. Yeah, great. But I would, I would say the consultation is the most important process. And the key is 
there's this concept of, you know, instant gratification. People want to look good really fast. And we can understand that. But be, even, even if that's the case, um, it's best to have all the options in hand and decide what's best for the client to achieve that outcome they want. Mm, yeah, absolutely makes sense. And mm. where can people find more about you or Dr. T Aesthetics? Right. So we've got a website. Our website is um, drteva.com.au. Uh, we've got a social media page, um, a Facebook page, Dr. Teva, Teva Kumar. And we've also got a Instagram page or Dr. Teva underscore aesthetics. But the website has got a lot of information. And they can also look at all our reviews on Google. Um, and they can also phone Simone. Simone's a practice manager. Have a chat with her over the phone. She'll also, um, Simon also tell you what we're all about. And and then I would recommend them to come in for a consultation before committing to any treatment. Okay. And by the way, I have to add the consultation is non-obligatory. So if they come in and they're happy, they're great, they can proceed. If they want to get a second, third opinion, that's fine too. There's no obligation to then contribute treatment. Mm, that's great to know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on today's show, um, Dr. Theva. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great uh, being here. And I hope your listeners find this extremely useful. Another fabulous interview. I love speaking to practitioners from all walks of life with all different experiences um, and hearing their journey into aesthetics, into skin, into professional practice. It's always so much fun. Um, Dr. Thiever shared with us a really interesting view on using injectables to actually provide a natural result for his patients. And the three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were number one, natural beauty is timeless. Trends will come and go, but ultimately, if you are seeking a practitioner that provides a natural result, there will be practitioners out there that do just that. And conversely, if you want a more dramatic result, there will be a practitioner out there that specializes in these types of treatments. Uh, number two, although Dr. Thiever is a highly qualified and experienced uh, practitioner, he also or he still refers on when he thinks someone else can get a better result for his patient, which is really refreshing. Number three, layering treatments and ensuring that the skin is healthy and clear of imperfections is just as important, if not more so, when considering a treatment plan with injectables. Why plump the skin or uh, reduce wrinkles if your skin looks unhealthy and it is dull and lustless, etc.? So thank you so much for listening. If you have a skin query, question or story, I'd love to hear from you. Let us know by emailing info at dermhealth.co. May you be empowered on your skin journey. Bye for now.